Welcome to the Vine Podcast. This is Warren, and I am joined once again today by Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hey, Warren. How are you? I am doing well. How are you? I'm happy today. Nice, beautiful, sunny day. Had a chance to get out and feel the beautiful weather, so I'm thankful for that. Good. Yeah, it is a nice day today. Been enjoying the nice weather this week after the week that was last week, so... Yes. That's good. Snowvid 2021. <laughs> That's right. So Rachel and I are going to spend some time today really talking about Mark 8. And we're going to end up just kind of going all through, just walking through this chapter uh, really in total and looking at some stuff that's going on here. We're going through Mark 8 really because this is a reading from from this weekend's Lent reading material. If you're following along with us with the, the kind of devotional, the dwell Lent devotional that we sent out. This there were sections this weekend that came from Mark eight, and so we thought going through this whole chapter might give a little more context to that. And so if you're you're following along with that reading plan, hopefully this this adds some more depth and, and context to some of the things that that we're reading there. And if you're not following along with us, this can be a great standalone conversation. Hopefully, a great standalone conversation uh, about Mark eight and about some of the things that we find there. And I think it also fits well on the heels of the, the, the sermon series that we've just finished, looking at John's letters, and in, in kind of anticipation of and looking ahead to the next sermon series that we're going to be, uh, be going into about the cross. And so I think, I think this conversation fits well in between those series as well, for reasons that I will try to remember to explain as we go through this conversation. <laughs> And so I know Rachel and I kind of had similar thoughts as we've kind of talked about what we're going to talk about today. We, we intentionally don't talk about specifics of, of kind of our thoughts because we want it to be conversational. We, we want it to be to sound like an, and to be an authentic conversation and dialogue. But, but we have both shared that, that we both think there's a lot in here. And so, so I'm looking forward to this conversation and to see what we both have found in here and, and, um, things that, that we've seen or that the Spirit has sort of brought out to us as we've been looking through this, this scripture and going through it. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm ready. Ready to go, Rachel? I'm ready. All right. So we're just going to pick right up. Uh, like I said, we're, I'm going to kind of begin our, our conversation by just walking us through Mark 8. And I preached through, I preached through Mark a couple of years ago at this point. And, and when I did that, I really grew to appreciate Mark's gospel in a new way, because I think I'd always sort of heard, or I remember hearing a lot of people talk about how, you know, if you read through Mark, it, it can come across very choppy, because it's like, it, it just there's not a lot of long stories, it's kind of short details, Mark just gives the details, and then it's like, and he also, there's, there's a lot of momentum in the book, it feels it feels like a lot of action. Mark repeatedly says, you know, and immediately they went here and immediately this happened and then this and, 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 and so it's just, it's, it's a lot of action and, and it feels like Mark is really trying to build some momentum and wanting you to get this kind of fast paced sense of his writing. Um, and I feel like sometimes that can lead to this kind of this thought that Mark is just kind of a, a series of facts that are just kind of thrown together haphazardly, like, and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. But if you read through it, it becomes pretty evident, I think, that he's, he's a really great storyteller, I feel like. And, and I feel like there's a lot of intentionality and purpose into what he's doing. And I think this chapter is such a great example of that. 
because I think you've got this you've got this healing in the middle of this chapter that I think is this great metaphor for everything happening around it. And I don't say that to me that the healing itself, like I think the healing is real and not, you know, a metaphor in and of itself. But I think this, this actual healing that, the, that Jesus does, this restoring of sight for this blind guy, is, is sort of very emblematic and met- metaphorical in a way for everything else happening around it in this chapter. And, and so that just gives a little bit of kind of my thoughts of, of how I see all this chapter tying together and what I think is going on here and why I think it's good for us to, to step back from kind of some of the shorter readings that we've had in this, in this um, reading guide to look at the, the greater context of what's going on in this chapter. So uh, the chapter begins with Jesus feeding a large crowd of at least 4,000 people. And it's another situation in which the disciples, uh, you know, from a human perspective, justifiably don't know how they're going to go about feeding this many people. How are we going to get this many people food? Um, and so, of course, Jesus ends up feeding them. They, they have food left over. Then he, he sends the crowd away. Jesus uh, gets into a boat with his disciples, and they go off to another location. Uh, once they get there, the Pharisees then came. They begin to question Jesus, and to test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. And then there's this great phrase where it says, he sighed deeply. And I just really like that. That marks, <laughs> you can just almost hear Jesus begin, like, his frustrations almost just with, with all of these people, especially the Pharisees. So he sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left uh, them, got back into a boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, and this is where I like to picture Jesus kind of letting out another sigh. Like, I'm, I expect it from the Pharisees. Now you guys too. Like, here we go. So Jesus says, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? And so there we see this first reference to, to sight, right? Where Jesus is, is kind of trying to get them to see or trying to get them to recognize some things that are going on. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five, li- the fo- the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And I kind of, I remember when I, so I remembered, I had a lot of thoughts as I was going through this scripture um, in preparation for this podcast. I remember preaching through this chapter and I remember having this thought and saying this in a sermon that, that when Jesus asked them that, I picture the disciples saying that almost as like kids who have sort of been caught in something and are kind of having to own up to something to their parents. And Jesus, almost like a parent saying, how many baskets did you pick up? And the, the disciples were like, 12. Five. Yeah. <laughs> and when I broke 12, the seven loaves for the 4,000, yeah. How many pieces did you pick up? Seven. Like, yes, Jesus, we know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so then he said to them, do you still not understand? And so then we come to, they get to Bethsaida. And that's when they find this blind man who asked Jesus to heal him. Jesus heals him by spitting on his eyes. And then he asks him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. And then I really think 
to me, just in the way I read this chapter, the whole chapter, like to me, this next verse is the center of the whole chapter and I think is what holds the whole chapter together. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And I think that last phrase, he saw everything clearly, is sort of emblematic and, and supposed to catch our attention to everything else happening around it. Uh, so then Jesus and his disciples, and I'll explain more about my thoughts on that as we go, but Jesus and his disciples went into the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Okay, I want to read the next paragraph before, we, before we're done, but I want to stop there for a minute because there's, there's so much there that we can get into already. And so I've, I've kind of given a couple of my thoughts as we've gone along here, but I, I want to pause here and, and get your thoughts. Rachel, where do you think is a good place to start or what initially kind of stands out to you about this chapter? What do you see, what do you see Jesus doing here? I see this chapter as some stories about how Jesus is painstakingly revealing his identity over and over. (laughs) And so (laughs) he reveals his identity in the feeding of the 5,000 and he shows that he has access to the resources from heaven. Basically, he's showing that he is God, that it's not just a miracle worker like a magician, but that he has divine power. And that he's trying to show the disciples, what I have is enough for you. You are safe with me. Um, So it definitely, I mean, the connection is he feeds them. And then later, the next trip, they're like, oh, no, we only brought one loaf of bread. And and Jesus is like, guys, remember, like, I fed 5,000 people. Um, So they're like, (laughs) yeah. He's like, why are you worrying about that? You know, and then with Peter too, he's like, your concern is in the wrong place. Like you're thinking in human terms or worldly terms. I need you to think in in a different way, like expand your thinking, think heavenly. Like it's kind of like, open your eyes, realize who I am, realize that I am from God and that when you're with me, you don't have to worry. And I think it's just him dealing with people who are questioning his authority, questioning his identity, and even people who are eager to believe and follow like the disciples, but are just slow to understand. And so it's Jesus, yeah, taking long sighs, but I think he is still gracious in it because he does like go through it with them again, like how many loaves was it, you know? Um, And the second touch to the blind man, that's an interesting connection what's happening with the disciples in that Jesus has to give them a second touch 
on the story to explain to them what happened. He's also giving a second touch to the blind man. And it's not because Jesus isn't powerful enough to make it work the first time. I think it's, he's showing like, this is a process of building your faith. Like the more that you're with me, the more that your eyes will be open to see who I am and to believe in my identity. So I think to me, the whole chapter is about who Jesus is and the struggles of people to believe or to comprehend or to accept his authority. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why that's why I said at the beginning that I think that healing really, really kind of sits at kind of the fulcrum of everything else happening around it. And that that Jesus certainly seems to be some doing something intentional there. And I think Mark's Mark's doing something intentional with his storytelling of it. That that yeah, Jesus obviously has the ability to um to heal his sight on the first try. <laughs> um, even without a touch. Right, without a touch. With a word, but with, he chose Right, to with anything touch. he could do it, but he he chooses to touch. He chooses something very visceral and and experiential and and he he makes it take two attempts, quote unquote, mm. attempts. And <laughs> and so yeah, there seems to be something intentional that Jesus is doing there. And I I I think you're right. I think it's very much tied to this idea that 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 yeah, the disciples are they're still not getting it. It takes it takes multiple encounters with Jesus in order for for sight to be restored and for blurry vision to become clear and to be able to see clearly. And I think that's what we see. Like I, I think we see that very specifically with Peter, where Peter, right after that, so even after you have this situation earlier where Jesus just directly says, You're not seeing things still, and then you have this healing. And then right after that is when Peter says, you are the Messiah. But then it's like Jesus starts to describe then like, okay, well, here's what that looks like. Right. And, and Peter's like, no, 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 you got it wrong. <laughs> and this juxtaposition of like saying that someone is the Messiah and then hearing what they say and rebuking them is just so fascinating. <laughs> um, like the, 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 I don't know, the, the line of thought that it takes to get there, like to recognize someone as the Messiah and then rebuke them for what they say. And even the juxtaposition of, of Jesus takes the blind man aside. It says he takes him aside, away from the crowd, and heals him. And then it says Peter takes Jesus away, right? He takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Even that imagery and that juxtaposition is interesting to me. But, but you've got this, this situation there where I think, like, to me, it's like Peter can see. He's just not seeing clearly yet. It's still blurry. Like, I can see that you're the Messiah, Jesus. But it's still kind of blurry about what that means. And and it's so going to take he, some more work. Right. I think, yeah, Peter knew, like, you are the Messiah. Messiah just means anointed one. Like, he realizes you are the one who is anointed with the Spirit of God. You have the authority and the power and the wisdom of God on you. But... Peter didn't understand what the Messiah had to go through in order for all of the world to see him as the Messiah. So once Jesus starts saying the Messiah, this is what happens to the Messiah. The Messiah yeah. will suffer many things and will die. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. So like, <laughs> Hold on, you've got it wrong, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, Jesus is showing Peter, you can't have a Jesus who is only Messiah, like only the happy and nice Savior. He can't save you if he doesn't go to the cross. So Peter wanted a Savior, but not one who would suffer and die. And mm -hmm. Jesus says it's not either or. 
If right. if you want to have a savior, he must be the one who suffers and dies. So this is a hard truth, but ultimately it's one that Peter accepts. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And I think that's the, the other thing that, that to me is so interesting about this is that, so if you just kind of extrapolate some of this out, right, that if you kind of take the theory that that Peter is one of Mark's main sources of material for his writing. Mm. I think that makes chapter eight even that much more interesting to me. Like to picture Mm. Peter recounting this story to people later, whether or not you, whether or not he was Mark's source. Like I, I I imagine Peter doing that later down the road. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I imagine Peter almost like telling people like, then I said he was the Messiah. And then Jesus said this stuff and I rebuked him and, like, yeah, I realize how ridiculous that sounds now, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just mm. imagining that conversation taking place and imagining Peter like sharing this with people down the road is is another interesting thing to me. And another, I think, compelling uh, aspect of this chapter, especially if if Peter is, in fact, one of Mark's main kind of sources for information as Mark is going about kind of piecing together his narrative. Yeah, I mean, without the resurrection really none of them could have understood. But Jesus does tell them too. He says the Messiah will suffer and die and after three days rise again. So that's within the whole message that Peter is rebuking, like even the resurrection part. Um, but once he, once Jesus does come back to life and appears to them again, that's when things start to click. And there are even times where Jesus healed people and basically said, don't tell anyone about this until after our, I'm resurrected. <laughs> um, so it really all hinges on the resurrection. And I think he even says that twice in chapter eight, right? That um, I, I think I kind of skipped over those parts. But uh, so after he heals the man, Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. And then after Peter says, you're the Messiah, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, there's, there's, definitely, there's definitely some of that going on even right here in this chapter. And so I think for me, part of the, part of the encouragement for, the, for me from this chapter is this recognition that, that it takes the disciples a long time, that their vision is still blurry for, for a while. And, and I think, again, that's completely understandable, especially being on that side of, of the cross and that side of the resurrection, that, that of course, all this is going to still look blurry. And, and, and so I think even though they're seeing all these miracles, I, I, I think we, we should probably cut them some slack. And I think as you're right, yeah. I, think as, I think you're right that Jesus is gracious with them. And I think that's the encouragement for us is that kind of, as you said, like this is a, it's a process, spiritual formation, spiritual maturation is a process. And it's what makes daily time in scripture, like we've been promoting with the, with the Lenten season important. It's what makes uh, a consistent prayer life important because all of this is a process and, and it, it may take repeated encounters with Jesus in order for my, my sight to be fully restored. It may take repeated, um, repeated touchings to kind of use that, that language yeah. from the story in order for me to, to be able to see clearly. And so if, if I've been on this journey for a while and there are still things that seem blurry to me, then, then I, I should know that I'm in good company. And, and the answer is to keep, to keep leaning into that and to keep pushing forward because because yeah, it's a process. It's, it's going to take some time, and that's okay. Hmm. Yeah, 
I think it's also important to realize that uh, Jesus knew who he was being confused and conflated with. So when he asks, uh, who do people say that I am? There are these other theories. Oh, well, they say you're John the Baptist, or they say you're Elijah, and or maybe Jeremiah or other prophets. And Jesus actually doesn't rebuke that either, which is interesting. He's not like, no, they're wrong. I'm not them. <laughs> like, um, So Jesus actually, I think, takes that instead and kind of says, yes, I am part of the guild of the prophets. You know, I am one who is sent by God and he has so much in common with them. Like Elijah, you know, the miracles that he did. Um, but when, but those answers, they all kind of miss the mark a little bit. They just fall a bit short. They're not quite who Jesus is, but they are part of who he is. And so then the answer, I actually, like Matthew's version of it in sixteen sixteen, Peter answers and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so in Matthew's gospel, Peter is saying, you are the Messiah and you are from God. So you're the one who's going to save humanity. You are human, but you are God, the son of God. Um, and to me, those are the, the two main features of Jesus' identity that we get there is the, the human and the divine. And Jesus is like those former prophets, but he's much beyond them. Um, which I actually was thinking of it more in not Mark 8 alone, but Mark 8 and 9. Um, because then in 9, it goes to his transfiguration. And I think that, that that story is super mysterious. Totally don't understand all that's going on with Jesus. But like he basically like lifts up in the sky and his clothes are super white, like whiter than bleach can make them. And, and Moses and Elijah are there. And so Jesus is basically showing, yes, I am part of them. I am in fellowship with them and I am distinct from and higher than these other prophets that you have seen before. I am something of a completely other glory and order because Jesus is the only one that's transfigured. He's the only one who it says his clothes are so wide or whatever. Um, so it's, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't rebuke those associations, but it's just falling short a bit. And so the answer that he praises is you are the Christ. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Because I think especially, especially in Matthew, you have a lot of allusions to Moses and, and sort of Jesus's connections to Moses and, and this idea that, yeah, he's, he's in the line of Moses and those other figures from, from the Jewish heritage, but he's the better Moses. He's the, he's the one who is going to accomplish the things that none of those others could ever fully, could ever fully accomplish. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And like Elijah, wasn't he taken up into heaven? <laughs> um, so instead of Jesus like taking his glory in that way, Jesus is going to take glory through the way that was designed for the Messiah, the harder way, the way of suffering and actually being lifted up on the cross. And in John, he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So Jesus is lifted up here in the transfiguration. And I feel like the disciples are like, oh my gosh, like something bigger is about right, to happen. Right. <laughs> but that wasn't the biggest moment. 
um, there was still the cross. The cross was the moment where he was going to be lifted up and then all people would see. And that was the unforgettable thing. And I, I think the other, you know, where I kind of saw a connection, I mentioned at the beginning where I saw a connection to this, this sermon series that we've just come out of, where, where you and I have both talked in, in, in sermons on, on John's letters about how the, the issue seems to be that you have these people who were denying that Jesus is the Son of God. And, and that obviously is of the utmost importance to John, because from John's perspective, like if you take that piece of it away, then none of, like, none of the rest of it makes any sense. Uh, yeah. And so like, you've, you've got to have that. And, and I think the, the reason that, that I think, that, I think Jesus, uh, that, that this story, and specifically Peter's response, resonates with me is that I think if you just look within the church, like that's not our primary issue. And I think I kind of said that in one of the sermons. Mm. That like culturally, yeah, we've got a lot of different opinions on who Jesus is and, and his identity and all that. But like we don't have these like stark divisions within the church of like one group saying Jesus is not the son of God and one group saying he is. Like within the, within the kind of greater context of church, there's pretty much uniform belief of that. There's a diversity in a lot of other thought, but, but we have the belief of that. But where I think we struggle is, is kind of where, where Peter is struggling with. He's, he's declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. He's declaring he's the Son of God. But then when, when he sees what that calls Jesus to and what that may in turn then call him to, right. then, then it gets a little blurry. And it's like, wait, I don't, I don't know about that. And, and I think that's much more in line with, I think, our challenge and, and where probably we are as, as kind of modern day Christians and believers in Jesus is that, and so it makes me wonder, like, I wonder what are the ways in which we still have blurry vision about Jesus? What are the ways in which I may be able to see and be able to say, yeah, Jesus is my, my Lord, my Savior. He's the Messiah. He's the chosen one. He's the Son of God. But are there places then where, where I still fully fail to see what that means and to grasp what that means for the ways in which I'm supposed to, to follow and, and give my life over to him as those things? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, I mean, for me, I feel like <laughs> there have to be thousands of those and God gives me grace in all of them. Um, I think part of it is the part that you didn't you didn't get to read yet at the end of Yeah, well let's Mark let's go 8. into that one. Do you want to do you want to read that next paragraph? Sure. For us yeah. So Mark 8:34 and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it." For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Um, so to me, it's that zinger about taking up your cross because Peter just comes off of saying, no, Jesus, you don't right. need to go to the cross. And then Jesus is like, yes, I do. Like, get behind me, Satan. Don't tempt me from not fulfilling the calling that I have, you know. But not only me, you also have to take up your cross. And Peter is like, whoa, like, I was already not okay with you going to the cross. And now you're <laughs> saying I have to do it too. Right. Uh, yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that's one of those statements 
I think that's one of those statements of Jesus that we completely miss the shock value that it's that Jesus intends for it to have. And I think that happens with a lot of Jesus's ministry, like especially with, you know, with references to Samaritans and stuff. Like our our frame of reference for Samaritans is like these kind of nice people in Scripture who are just kind of picked on, right? But like that's not how Jewish people would have. That's not the frame of reference Jewish people had. And so when Jesus praises Samaritans, like that has a shock value for the Jewish people that, that we just kind of miss. And, and so I, I read this statement sort of similarly, that we just have this completely different sort of connotation around the cross where they don't have any, any, any kind of picture of the there's cross. There's nothing positive. Yeah, there's nothing the redemptive of a cross. There's nothing, yeah, there's nothing positive. There's nothing comforting about the cross. And this is going to get into where we're going to go. This is why I said I think it leads into to the next sermon series, because that's a lot of where we'll go in, in the first sermon of this series. And, and like the, the cross is, you didn't even talk about crucifixions in like polite conversation. It was socially, like, this would have been like a crass statement almost, I think, for Jesus right. to say. Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Why are you talking about torture? These are torture devices. These are humiliation mm-hmm. devices. And, and so for Jesus to just throw that out, like, I'm sure they were just completely lost about what that even means. But to suggest that would have just been completely horrifying <laughs> yeah. uh, to them. And, and I, think it's, we, I think we blunt that statement so much in kind of a lot of just the common ways that we think about it. Because I think we often, when we read it, I think in our minds, and even when we talk about it sometimes, it's almost like we replace cross for burden or annoyance sometimes. Like, I, I feel like when I hear people talk about this verse, it's like they'll, they'll be talking about something difficult that they're going through and then say, well, it's just my cross to bear. Right. This is something hard. This is a difficult season of life, but I guess it's my cross to bear. And 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 yeah, I think Jesus's point there, though, especially in the original context, would have been so much blunter and and shocking and say, no, this there's going to be some stuff that that's going to that you're not going to want to go through. And there's going to be a way of suffering that's involved with this. And yeah, and you need to be ready for it. And that's yeah that's hard i always wonder when we get into this conversation um like in verse 35 jesus says whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it so i always wonder is there a distinction between just like general suffering and the kind of the hard things that we all go through in life versus like actual persecution for your faith and so when this talking about the cross is jesus specifically talking about the way that the disciples would be persecuted and martyred for their f- literal following of Jesus? Or is this able to generally apply to kind of most hard things that we go through in life? Or just, I guess, any difficulty that comes along with obeying Jesus's teaching? That's a, that's a good question. What's the answer? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he made it more specific than we do. And that because like we don't experience as much persecution for our faith as the disciples and even just others in other parts of the world do, we apply it to other areas of our life. And I think that's probably okay. But I think there was more joy in the suffering when it was actually due to your faith, like when you're sticking up for the gospel 
and you know like all the the beatitudes and all the 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 blessings that Jesus talks about for those who are persecuted I feel like Jesus made it very particular and specific to persecution for those who remain faithful to me and those who spread the gospel so maybe we're not living radically enough um, if we're not facing that type of persecution or there's this pendulum of culture, you know, culture is more accepting now of being Christian, but some think that it will go back even in America to a high level of persecution for Christians. Yeah, I think you could certainly read it as, I mean, we, we know from tradition that, um, I mean, I think we, we have example of at least, I think all but one, right, of the 12, we, we pretty much know their, their cause of death and, and that they were, they were martyred. Um, I think, I think that's right. And so, so yeah, there's certainly, there's certainly a, a picture of that. And I think Jesus even, it's Peter that Jesus even gets, says that more directly to Peter at another point, right? That at some, at some point you're going to be led to where you do not want to go. And yeah, and, the and, end of John. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so yeah, I think you could certainly hear and, and read some of that in there. So I, I think your questions are good. I think to me, to me, that the application within that paragraph that that I think really fits from a modern perspective is that well, for one thing, I think you know there may be suffering that that we have to endure or or things that we have to give up or not pursue mm. that that others in the world may right. because of the for the sake of Christ. It's probably yeah not going to mean crucifixion for us. But but I do think that where he says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? To me, that question is is really gets at the heart of it kind of in a modern context that that I think that is where we, you know, how much how much worldly stuff. To what extent are we going to pursue worldly things? At the expense of of our soul, at the expense of spiritual health and well-being at the expense of things that are that are weightier right and, and are we willing to give up some of those pursuits for the sake of the gospel yeah yeah i think that's very well put and helps it to make it a little bit more concrete in like my life and asking myself like am i picking up my cross and following jesus what does that look like for me um so i think i'm still asking those questions personally yeah, and it makes me think of you know even the, just just that question of because I, I I do think it's I think it's contextual for us certainly but I think it's also just human nature even thinking to the sermon that uh, as we're recording this it's the sermon that I will preach Sunday if you're listening to it on Monday it's the sermon I preached the previous Sunday we always talk about the kind of the the the, the gaps between when we record these and and when they come out but. You know, in Third John, there's this guy Diotrephes who who loves to be first, and that's kind of kind of what I hear in this. You know, what good is it to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Like that that love to be first, that love to get ahead, um, when when that becomes your driving force and your need, and you're willing to just run over whoever gets in your way, whenever to do whatever it takes to get on top and stay on top. Like, is is that worth it? Like, is it is it worth that to to forfeit your soul? And that's kind of what we see in Third John is like he's uh, Diotrephes is he's casting people out of the church. He's anyone who disagree with them is is doesn't have a place with them, and it's just it's kind of cancerous for everyone around him because of this this drive that he seems to have to be in charge and to be 
to be the one who gets to make these decisions. And it's like, is, 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 this, is attaining that much power and influence worth it if, if you're forfeiting your, your soul and, and your spiritual well-being? And, and I think that that's a rhetorical question, at least as far as Jesus sees it, and I think as far as what we would, we would say. I hope the answer is obvious. <laughs> right, yeah. One of those when you, you, you the hope application is harder. <laughs> right. You hope it's obvious and it's easy to see in other people. It's easy to see in diatrophies, mm. but it's harder to see in my own life. Well, but is this that I'm pursuing? Uh, you know, is this getting in the way of my spiritual well-being? And am I willing to, to give that up in order to, to gain something greater? I think it ties into the Lent conversation of what are barriers or what are things that are keeping us away from growing spiritually and developing in our relationship with Christ? And are there things that we need to say no to um, in order to follow Jesus more closely? Well, that may be a good question for us to, to end with as we pull it back into to the Lenten season and a good, a good question for us to, to ponder as, as we go forward from here. and. Uh, I think once again that 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 phrase that that question along with that phrase in the middle of of, of Mark eight where he says uh, once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes then his eyes were opened his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly and so maybe in the pursuit of some of these spiritual disciplines maybe in the pursuit of of asking what are things we need to give up um, maybe there's an invitation there for Jesus to lay his hands on on our eyes on our hearts uh on our minds on our spirits so that we can be in this process of continually seeing more clearly amen uh all right well thanks for joining me again today rachel do you want to close us in prayer sure jesus we confess that you are messiah and the son of the living god we pray that you would give us a second touch wherever it's needed in our lives that our vision would be restored and that we would see you more clearly it's in jesus name we pray amen amen